Hey, hey, welcome back. This is the first interview in my new format, where I interview storytellers, difference makers, and domain experts to tell their stories, but also to invite them to connect with each other and challenge them to take action on issues and problems they care about, the problems that need solving. Think about it as a live experiment as I work to build action engines for progress. Why? Because actions matter, and we have enough think tanks. You you have a thousand conversations with yourself every day, and... That will affect who and what you attract into your life, what you are thinking about at any given point. It's like people and things are radio stations. And the more you think about something, the more you're tuning into that radio station. So for the first of my Storyteller series of interviews, my guest is Jennifer Hutchins, award-winning Hollywood TV and film producer, and now Austin-based founder of All Entertainment Business, the fast-growing entertainment industry networking event series. In the first 45 minutes of the interview, we understand who Jennifer really is and what made her who she is. She recounts her journey and path to success in Hollywood and shares her wisdom on what works, dealing with fear and doubt, and the rollercoaster ride of a producer's life in LA. In the second 45 minutes, Jennifer discusses her vision for the All Entertainment Business Networking Event Series, shares her wisdom on how to open doors and create opportunities applicable to any career at any stage in life, and how it resulted in her working with critically acclaimed writer-director Richard Linklater. And she also shares her three pieces of advice to anyone seeking a successful career in the industry. As we wrap up, Jennifer discusses some of the issues she cares about, and I challenge her to connect and collide with some of my other guests, the difference makers and the domain experts, and we agree to a follow-up discussion to explore the outcome. So, let's get started. Jennifer, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you for having me. That's excellent um, to be sitting here, having you on the other side of the mic. Normally, I'm watching you on stage at the Austin Entertainment Business events. Yeah, this is fun being on the other side. Yeah, I, I feel like I can just lean back well, and you say uh, it's fun. You go don't for the you, ride. You don't know you're going to be saying that in two hours' time. <laughs> Let's <laughs> oh, no. see. Let's see how it goes. Anyway, well, let me start by introducing you in terms of what you do. So as this week's guest, you're probably my only my second Austin-based guest, but you yourself were born in Michigan. You trained as a producer, as you call yourself, a multifaceted producer, yeah. working across TV and film in LA before becoming, I'd, I'd say, an entrepreneurial founder. Now, you may still be a producer, but you certainly fall into that that characteristic and that criteria or, or that category of founder of what's called Austin Entertainment Business or to people outside of Austin, the all entertainment business, which maybe you can come on and tell us about in terms of how you're servicing the entertainment industry by delivering this new amazing networking event series, which obviously started here in Austin, but has expanded across Zoom and across the world. So we will come on and talk about that. But before we really get started into actually the, the what you do, and where are you going with it? It'd be great if you could start by telling me and just explaining who you are as a person. Well, who I am as a person, I am somebody that does not believe in limits. I believe in magic. I believe that anything is possible. I was raised in such a way where any anything I wanted to do, it was just a matter of figuring out how to do it, at least in my small little world of Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, we, we, we traveled a lot. So I, I still keep that to this day that if you put your mind to it, you can do anything. And that's wow. who I am. Okay. If that is who you are, I do want to know what or who made you you. 
But maybe when you answer that, you could also delve into more about this believing in magic and where that came from. <laughs> okay, so who made me? I, I come from a mother who was a social worker. She's a retired social worker. And she was pounding the pavement in the streets of Detroit. And she was the one in charge of putting together or taking apart families when there has been an incidence in the house. Mm -hmm. So she was in the foster care social work system. And we heard many stories of families being ripped apart by mental health problems and drugs. And then on the other side of, of my life was my father, who, when he graduated top of his class, was offered five top-level executive jobs and ended up becoming the CFO of Firestone headquarters and continued on to be a CFO for many Fortune 500 companies before he uh, untimely passing on uh, the weekend before my first day producing. Wow. Your mother being a social worker, that must, she must have been in, in that, in that sort of facet of social work must have seen some believably traumatizing situations because I'm assuming it was a time post the heyday of Detroit when the car industry may have fallen somewhat into decline. Yeah, she was right in the middle of the, the timing where the Reagan administration decided to cut funding for mental health institutions. So her caseload at the time went from five manageable cases to uh, nearly 50 cases. Wow. And she remembers the day when her boss brought this giant stack of papers and set it in front of her and said, here's your new caseload. And she was one of those social workers that risked her her career to help a kid. If there was a kid in need and they were getting stuck in the system, she would sometimes bend some rules to make sure that that kid didn't fall back into a bad situation. Mm -hmm. So me and my sister, a younger sister, we were raised with that sort of thought of, you know, things aren't black or black and white. Things are just human. And you make the best decision you can based on humans. I can understand that impacting your values. I can, I can get a sense. I'm, I'm asking you about your father and how he impacted your values and principles. But having that worldview, that belief that anything is possible, believing in magic, what how did that impact you? What was it that they did? And when was the first moment you had that realization of magic? It wasn't until my later years. I think the the foundation was set as a child, and I'm still going to talk about my mother with mm -hmm. this stuff. She was raised in a time period of you know the 1960s where women could do one of three things. They could be a housewife, they could be a social worker, or they could be a nurse. And she felt very limited. So when she raised us, the sky was the limit. And we could conjure up, it was a yes, yes, you can do this, yes, you can do this. So growing up, you know, I was in tap, jazz, ballet, piano, manners class, theater, you know, you name it. And um, and I started to realize that if I put my mind to something, that it, it could happen. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of magical because when you're around a lot of people that just live in this world of limitations. And and I truly did believe that one day I would be able to fly and do weird stuff. <laughs> Ironically, watch what you believe because I, if you fast forward, I ended up producing over a hundred episodes of a magician named Chris Angel. 
And so here I was living uh, in magic. So it was written in the stars. You had to do it. Wow, that must have been um, fascinating and educational to actually see behind the curtains of uh, a magician. Yeah, you know, it, it sort of lends an interesting perspective to life about audiences or masses of people and how easy it is to yeah. manipulate yeah. masses of people. There's a lot of similarities between magic and politics. Mm -hmm. I was also a journalist who worked in politics right out of college. And, and so it was, it was very easy for me to compare the two. And it also must be very interesting to then take that and apply it to your role as a producer, knowing you're in the entertainment business as well, to actually the impact you can have on people by applying those skills. Oh, 100%. The biggest misleading quote that I think our society has used is sticks and stones may hurt my bones, <laughs> but words will never hurt me. So misleading. <laughs> the power of the word yeah. is everything. It's, it's religion, it's politics, it's story. I mean, our, our culture and everything is based off of words. We fall in love because of words. We hate because of words. It is, be careful with your words because they are powerful. I used to work at an agency in London called DDB and Sarah Watson, one of the junior planners, has gone on to be a, a very successful chairman of BBH, another very successful agency. She's transformed recently to become a career coach and Sarah posted on LinkedIn. I need to write something about this because I thought it was fascinating. In her first year as a career coach, she gave her insights and lessons for the years. And she said, the one, one thing that jumped out to me, she said, don't underestimate the power of words. Words are code. And when you think about it, that it's almost like the code that fuses us with either belief, positive or negativity. And it's interesting when you say that, because I'd never thought about that because I, I've heard, I heard someone recently talk about sticks and stones will break my bones, but the power was never hurt. The reality is, the people that can deflect those words have a power because the words are code and words can have that level of impact on an individual's psyche, their belief system. To have that protective cape is a superpower. Yeah. In theory. So I think it's interesting that we don't, we really do not. And I know a lot of career coaches and mentors talk about be careful the words you use. Oh, 100%. Because the more you use, it does have a subliminal effect on your, on your psyche and the people around you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all know when we were surrounded by people. I had um, a boss, uh, remain nameless. It's another story. He had this term, lovely way of simplifying life. And he said, there's two types of people in the world, radiators and drains. <laughs> and, and that's true. Some people do radiate and other people drain you. And it's through the words that they use. So. Yeah. I mean, a, a perfect example is, you're not recording this podcast right. Or, and how does that make you feel when I say that? So like defensive? Exactly. Yeah. Or I could say, oh, I know that you are such an expert at doing podcasts and that you're going to hit the record button at some point, right? Yeah, I know. It's completely different. Completely different. Yeah. I'm just tell I'm just but pointing out that, you know. It's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, then. So you talked about your mother. I can... Assume from everything you've said that you were in an environment of optimism and possibility. What role did your father play in that the creation of you? 
So my father, very kind, very sweet, but, you know, oversaw a billion dollar budget, was flying in and out of town to meet with clients from within. He was at Firestone for the majority of my young life. And we moved a lot because of it. He always all, within Michigan. We started in Akron, which was the headquarter. Akron, Ohio. Oh, yeah. uh, it, was, it was sort of the capital of tires. You know, here's Firestone and right across the street from his office, you were staring at the Goodyear building. And there was a lot of the tire mansions all leading their way downtown Akron. So at some point, he started flying back and forth to Tokyo. And eventually, Tokyo bought Firestone renamed it Bridgestone, um, but kept it Firestone for the public so the public would still believe it was an American-owned company, Mm -hmm. moved everybody to Chicago, Illinois. So that was us as well. And two years later, they moved the company back to Akron, Ohio. So we moved back and then they laid off all the top guys, including my father. And after that, we went to Michigan and my parents got divorced, not necessarily because of the layoffs, but there was a whole series of events that happened. Mm -hmm. But my father, his inspiration on me, um, he always talked to me like an adult, like a business. We were constant, you know, he would tell me about his day, business, clients, you know, the whole thing. I was, I had a certain sensibility of, or ease of talking to adults. Mm-hmm. It was, it was way easier for me than kids. And, uh, and then he would have clients come over and I would play classical music on the piano for them and, you know, I, I sort of enjoyed this, you know, getting to step into this adult world before I was supposed to be allowed to. How did that, when you say you're more comfortable with adult conversation, how did that impact you at school? Did you fit in? Absolutely not. <laughs> at least, in, <laughs> at least in my own head. You know, I had a lot of friends, but I always felt like people couldn't make decisions. So I would lead and guide them. I found out I was very influential over a lot of people simultaneously. So I would have big sleepover parties with 15 girls and I would tell them what they were going to do the entire time from when they showed up till when they left. Sounds like you were a producer in waiting. <laughs> yeah, it just, you know, I think, I think my parents were a little indecisive when it came to the family life. And I just always stepped into the role of making decisions. I was just, like, like when people sit there in the room and they go, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. It, like, it would drive me crazy. And I'm like, let's just go to Quaker Square and get a giant cookie and then we'll have dinner afterwards. Sound good? Great. Let's go. Snap of the fingers and done. Okay. And how, what about your sister? You mentioned you had a younger sister. Was she, she'd follow? So my, my sister got a little bit into the creative arts for a minute, but she became a scholar really quickly. So whatever I did, she did it way better. So when I graduated high school, I graduated with, I think, a 3.4. She graduated with a 4.2, with four in the U.S. standards being the highest you can go. So I don't know how she did a 4.2. I graduated a four-year degree in college in three years, and she did it in two and a half, both with honors. Classic so we- sibling rivalry, really, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, so we sort of had this thing. But then she really followed in my my father's footsteps. So she is a CFO of a big department for Abbott Medical. So that really worked out during the pandemic because we could have endless (laughs) supply of COVID tests. As you were talking about fitting in at school, you think I interviewed a woman called Emily Oberman who runs a design agency called Pentagram. They do all the idents for Saturday Night Live for years. And she described herself as a beautiful weirdo that she didn't fit in because her parents 
had such an impact on her design sensibilities and her view of the world. It was always out of step with the people that she was around. Between your mother and your father, which of the two of them do you think had the bigger impact on your world view, way that maybe people perceived you as you were growing up? Mm. I don't know. It, it felt very split in the middle. I feel like I heavily didn't fit in because I could speak to adults way easier because of my dad's influence. So I guess that's, that came with the bossiness. But I really had a sensitivity for people and what they were going through from my mother. And, you know, I would recognize if somebody was being picked on mm -hmm. and I would m make it purposeful to talk to them or say, how is your day going? Or do you want to, you know, participate in this group activity with me? in the class so that they didn't feel left out. I never felt like I had to work hard to be a part of any group. I could just kind of float in and out. And at the same time, I felt like an outsider to all the groups because I just really had a small, a hard time with small talk. Hmm. I wasn't interested in gossiping and, you know, just talking about how's the weather. So I didn't feel like I had a lot to say. Wow. Wouldn't be very good Brit. That's all we talk about, the weather. So there's a, it sounds like there, as you're describing it, there's a, there's a yin and yang, a balance between empathy that was infused by your mother's characteristics and yeah, decisiveness and maybe decisiveness from your father and direction, assertiveness. So maybe assertion and empathy at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And w which makes for sort of a weird person because it's setting you up to be an empathetic CFO or yeah. CEO. And it's like CEOs are supposed to not really be empathetic if they're going to be truly successful. <laughs> I don't know. M you know, maybe the world is a changing, uh -huh. but you know, that's, that's really been a struggle for me, you know, trying to oversee a lot of people while being empathetic mm -hmm. to them because you can, there's a fine line of getting ran over by people mm -hmm. with that. Um. About to start a Steve Jobs biography, put it in the show notes. Really, it's, it's about 300 pages. It's supposed to be a really good insight into his, how he deal, dealt with people. Obviously, a great listener, but also unbelievably decisive, but it could also read people. I think he probably, of any of the books I've read about leaders, is someone that probably does straddle both being empathetic, but unbelievably decisive and assertive in what he wants, but at the same time could understand the people that were working for him and to bring out the best. In them. Yeah. So, you, you know, the trick that I realized some years back is that people want to be told what to do. Mm -hmm. It's just how you tell them. But we all like, cause that's how we were raised. Most of us by adults, you know, they told us what to do every piece of our life. And then all of a sudden there's some sort of transition where no one's telling you what to do. <laughs> And it's very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So when you jump into a situation where somebody is telling you what to do, there is a certain comfortability if you're agreeing with it. It's also why if we don't have that direction, mentors and coaches are essential. Yes. So. Yes. And, it, and it's interesting to me that so many people decide to just be their own island. Mm -hmm. You know, like they, there's not a lot of people that get mentors and coaches. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've interacted with over 25,000 people through AEB, and I would say maybe 3% have mentors and coaches. I think it's changing. I think it'll, we'll start to see it on more and more. I mean, I hired a guy this year to give me a sort of a mentoring stroke coaching 
direction for what I'm doing with the podcast now, how I'm changing this as a result of the three months I spent with him diving into what is called a brand fix, my own personal brand. And it's, and it's really interesting because it does force you to reflect and to go deep and a deep period of introspection and question your own why. So yeah, definitely recommended for everyone. Okay, we've covered who you are and who and what made you who you are. Talk to us about what you're working to achieve and what impact you want to have. I mean, you've all clearly, and we'll get on top about AAB, you've had a great impact on everything you've done from your production work to the work you're doing now. But you've got some years ahead of you. And what are you working to achieve before you leave this mortal coil? Yeah, I, I think to get some perspective on where I am now, um, I should talk just for a minute about where I came from. Mm. So, you know, the vast majority of my teenage years were sp- spent in, well, actually my whole life, you know, living in the Midwest. But, you know, the, the, the heavy memories are this very small little town outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan. There was a Ford plant there and uh, Victorian homes where people left their doors unlocked and a lot of farmland. And it was such a small community that there was no buses or cabs that ran through. So growing up there, you sort of felt very isolated and everybody knows everybody. And, you know, at times we were very bored and, you know, we would go to the woods and, you know, we would get in our cars and we would go lost into other small towns and meet weird, quirky people. And I had these big dreams of one day getting out. And a lot of us did. We would say one day we're going to get out. But, you know, what did that mean? What did it look like? And at the time, I thought, oh, I would love to be in the entertainment business. I would love to be an actress. They look like they just have so much fun. And that was all I knew. That was my only perspective. I didn't know what behind the scenes was. But there was such a disconnect of how do you do that? So then deciding what to do in college, it was like, eh, I could major in acting, but that doesn't feel like at the time, it didn't feel like a real career. Like I, I need to choose a real career. So for me, it was picking journalism because I thought, well, I like to write and I like to talk to people. So I'll have an angle of broadcast. And, you know, after doing that for about a year, I realized I didn't like the politics of it. I couldn't really tell a real story. Mm-hmm. You know, especially in America, news is not publicly funded. It's privately funded. So, you know, there's a sway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sorry, guys, hate, hate to break that. And, you know, and journalists aren't paid much in the public doesn't like them much and you get a lot of criticism and you work a lot of weird hours. So fast forward, moving to Hollywood, I was, I thought I, I knew stuff because I'd been a journalist for CBS for a year. I'd been aired on CNN and, you know, very naive though, 22 years old. And I thought I knew everything because that you do know everything mm-hmm. when you're 22, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So when I moved to Hollywood, there was such a, a disconnect still of trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do and how to do it. And I didn't realize at the time, but Hollywood is based off of people that are born into it and their friends and their family and their cousins and the who you know. And I didn't know anybody. But hang on a second. So what made you move from journalism? What was the trigger that took you to Hollywood? I was spending so much time and effort and it didn't really feel like I could tell a real story that was going to truly help people. You know, we were getting press releases from all over the place. And we would cover those. And I'm like, but they wrote a press release. They've already wrote mm-hmm. our story for us in a way. You know, we really felt more like puppets. And that was not a place I wanted to be. So I thought, if I'm going to tell fake stories, I'll go tell fake stories mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Do you remember when you were at school and, and growing up before you went to college, university, 
Was storytelling something that resonated with you? Oh, yeah. Growing up in a small town, quirkiest people you've ever met. I didn't know that we were quirky until I started telling my stories in Hollywood, but Hollywood was shocked and amazed (laughs) by my quirky little town stories. You know, times where we're like, yeah, my friend had a junker car. And so we decided to go out in the middle of the country and, and jump a jump bridge in the car. And luckily we survived and they were like, what? And, and I literally got a job producing a car show starring Adam Carolla by telling that story. They're like, wow. oh, you must know cars. You're a car <laughs> expert. I'm like, sure. Yeah. Sounds like the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. No, yeah, uh, not- part of my biography that I do right is that, you know, I grew up in a small town, Dukes of Hazard style. Uh-huh. Huh. Wow. Okay. So that led you to Hollywood and then to your journey towards Austin entertainment business and why you're here in Austin, not in LA. Yeah. So, you know, I, I feel like in a way, part of my journey was like, there's an easy path, like a very straight line. Like let's, let's visualize the Wizard of Oz, right? There's the, there's the Emerald City right in front of you, straight line. But instead of taking that path, I took the zigzaggy all the way through the woods that might want to kill you all the way through the witch's castle and got picked up by monkeys and dropped and fell asleep in poppies and then finally <laughs> made it to the Emerald City. So I was like, there's easier ways to do this. Like I could have got to the Emerald City quicker. And I started sort of concocting these ideas in my head of how can I help people not struggle as much as me? Because I was also seeing a lot of people like me that were coming from the Midwest or other places and they would get their dreams crushed and they would move back home. It's really hard to just try to move out there and figure it out. And most people try to do that. And then they realize they don't know anybody. They don't have that magical key that opens the door. Mm-hmm. And so you start to get, you start to get kind of pushed around. Luckily, and I tell this to people to this day, I emphasize it. This is like the basis of why I started AEB, Austin Entertainment Business, all entertainment business is give first, don't ask. Cause people come out, they, they try to do something with themselves in their career. I mean, regardless of the entertainment business, just with anything. Mm-hmm. And they have their hand out and they're trying to get someone just to give. But it's like, it's so magical when you give first and you show people how much of an asset you can be for them. It really makes things quicker and faster. When I, when I looked back at the 10 years of success that I had in Hollywood, I was out there for 17 or 16 years, but I started, I started reflecting about 10 years in and I go, okay, what worked and what didn't? And every time something worked, it was when I gave, when I chilled. I didn't overthink it. I just said, hey, you look busy. What do you need? How can I help you? Do you think it was that realization, that moment? What was it that, what led you to take that step back and reflect and come to that realization? Because if you're on a, on a, on a treadmill of success and you want to get the reputation in a place like Hollywood, I'm assuming that it's self-fulfilling unless you sort of take a misstep. You're building relationships, you're getting a reputation, you're trusted. So isn't there a point at which you could become lackadaisical and just go, ah, yeah, I'm fine. But what made you suddenly reflect and make such a conscious decision and and look inside? I didn't realize what success was Mm -hmm. until I got to Austin, really. It was, yeah. How did it feel then if you're in Hollywood and you're you're doing these award-winning shows, series, that presumably must have felt like you'd hit the top of the world. You know, I would get something and it would be super exciting and, you, and you'd go on this really big high with it. And, and you're, you're with your team, you're with the actors, you're with everybody. 
and then it ends. Uh-huh. And, and then you go, oh, crap, I don't have a job. My bills are still coming in. And instantly, my thoughts would go to that. And then I would, you know, try, I would network. I'd be going to coffee. I'd be going to networking events. I would be sending out a million emails, resumes, and then bam. Okay. I'd get the next one. Mm-hmm. Great. And I would just laser focus in that. Okay. I'm writing. I'm producing. I'm casting. I'm directing, you know, and, I, and you're just living in the moment and everybody's becoming your family and you're go, go, go. And then all of a sudden that ends and you're like, mm-hmm. Oh, I was so busy. So I didn't set a, up the next thing. It's a cliche, but it's a roller coaster ride. Yeah. 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 And there were so many times where I just lived in fear that I didn't even sit down to watch the premiere of most of my shows because I was already too busy Mm. looking ahead on what's next, what's next. So, you know, rent is high. Expectations are high. Everywhere you look, somebody's doing better than you. And it's it's really easy to sort of get sucked into, like, I'm not there yet. I need to be better. I don't know the right people or I'm not at the I'm not at the studio. Like, there's always a bigger thing. At one point, I was pulling up in my 545i BMW, but then the Lamborghini pulls up next to me. You know? Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, oh. Okay. All right. So, so in that roller coaster ride that was Hollywood and the production life that you were leading, what was it that triggered the departure and the move to Austin? At a time, arguably, before Austin really became the it place to, to, to go and live. Yeah. I had spent 16 years in Hollywood and l- let me back up. Actually, it was a few years before my departure. I was in a really bad car accident. We were going 80 miles per hour on the freeway and in a Lamborghini. No. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because we were going to go skiing and I was actually going to ski for the first time since I was 15. And I had made the joke, okay, I can finally go skiing now because I have insurance in case I break something. And at the, I'm sitting in the backseat of the car. Well, when I got into the car, this girl who I had just met, who was the girlfriend of the driver of the car, like they were, you know, they'd been dating. And then my boyfriend was in the other seat. She said to me, aren't you going to put on your seatbelt? Like right when I sat down in the back seat, and I thought, geez, like, give me a second, lady. And I kind of didn't put on my seatbelt purposely just to kind of be like, nope, I'm a rebel. So she, she annoyed me right off the bat. So, so then we're in the carpool lane going about 80 miles per hour or so. And I'm texting with this guy that I'd worked with forever on the magic series. And he was texting me saying, there's another magic series that Spike has picked up. Do you want to do it? I'm like, Oh, wow. Can I, can I do some more magic? And I was like, okay. All right. I'll do this. You know, tell, tell the person to give me a call, make me an offer. And as soon as I hit send, bam, we were sideswiped and we were going so fast. On the freeway. Yeah. We were going so fast that it projected us into a wall. And then swipe swiped on a freeway. Well, it, it was like a, a, a car was trying to pass other cars, oh, see, right, maybe okay. going like 120 right, okay. or something. And, right, and they just came straight in. Yeah. So, so they hit us and then they kept going and we started flipping front over end again and again and again and again. And it was weird because everything just went in slow motion at that point. And Do you remember? Yeah. Oh, perfectly. And every time we hit the ground, I could hear everybody go, oh, and then it would go again. And I was, and I started thinking like on flip two, like we are flipping. I could die. This is weird. And I hope I don't die. You know, it was just very small, short Uh thoughts. And then we finally landed after flipping about five or six times and on the tires, luckily, 
and we sort of like looked around. What sort of car was it? It it was a small SUV. We sort of looked around at each other and said, we don't even know where we are on the freeway. Like we need to get out. All the windows were broken and we sort of ninja dove out of the windows. I'm not sure how we even did it. And there were still cars passing. We were still in the carpool lane, but all the traffic had stopped and that car that hit us just kept going. And, and then I realized my cell phone was in the car. I dove back in to get it, dove back out. And, and then I, after a while of us just standing there looking at each other, we realized nobody was stopping to help us. We didn't know if anybody had called 911. And, um, so I called 911 because you were wearing a seatbelt. How did you? <laughs> I know. And, and the girl next to me, her face was all bloody and I was really concerned about her. Mm. I think I might have even kicked her while mm. we were flipping. I don't know how it be, you know. So I called the ambulance Mm -hmm. and it finally came and they put me and her in the back of the ambulance and they assessed that the two guys in the front were fine. And then we got to the hospital and they ended up releasing her and then revealing to me that they thought my neck might be broken and definitely all my ribs were broken. So then I, I, I was laying in the emergency room of Compton Watts, my boyfriend who I at that point had been with for 10 years. Um, as soon as they gave me morphine, he said, well, you're about to go to La La Land. I'm going to go get some sleep so I can handle things in the morning. So he left me by myself in the emergency room of Compton Watts. And Which, as I was given that, morphine, for, and I didn't know... People that don't know Compton Watts. What? It's, it, it's, it's one of... They make they make rap songs about so how hard when you're talking about straight out of Compton. That, straight that's, out of Compton. That's the yeah, I mean, Compton. so to, to set a visual, the guy next to me had been stabbed six times with a box cutter by his wife, and you know, lots of gunshot wounds and stuff like that. Um, I remember being more concerned about my backpack, you know, like wanting to know where it was. I'm like, where's my backpack? <laughs> um, as I was laying there, and they were not allowing me to move. So, so my boyfriend of 10 years leaves. They had just told me I couldn't move, but they hadn't told me anything beyond that. And then they take me up to, you know, the, the room where I was going to stay. So I'm by myself at this point. I, I'd, I'd been laying there for an hour with something beeping, but I didn't have anybody with me to go get a nurse. And it was at that moment on morphine that I started thinking about who do I really have? I've been in LA for 15 years and. Who do I really even have to call? The one person who is supposed to be the person I have has now just left me. So I get up to the um, the room and it's revealed to me that my neck is broken in two spots and I could potentially be paralyzed. So you were sitting in a waiting room with a broken neck? No, I was I was laying in, in sort of like the ER, you so, know, okay, just you know, split by the drapes area, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, now I've got a broken neck. And ribs. And ribs. That's- and I could potentially... Excuse me. I could potentially be paralyzed. So I spent 24 hours not knowing, but I was on morphine. So I wasn't, uh, too sad. I, I was kind of laughing at fluffy kittens. Yeah. That's very strange medication. And in the next day, it's revealed to me, okay, you, you, it looks like you're going to heal fine. You can move your legs. Great. You can go home. So I started kind of reassessing my life at this point. Mind you, I had texted that guy when we were in the car. So two weeks later, I, I show up to his office to do some pre-production for that show I had agreed to do. And he goes, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> he goes, I didn't, I didn't get a memo. Why do you look like a gimp? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you what happened right after I texted you. Yeah, I said, you know, look, I can go to Vegas. I can produce this show. I just can't look left or right. And he said, okay. But yeah, I went and produced that show. I got back from Vegas, broke up with that guy. 
and then moved into my own place for the first time in years and just started having hope for life, but I didn't know what life was anymore. And I had one good friend, so I moved in with her and and then started dating. But six months into dating, I found myself pregnant. And so that really changed perspective. That was sort of the breaking point for me. <laughs> from the guy you were with or? No, new guy. Oh, new guy, right. Okay, then. <laughs> Yeah, th- this is how producers end up having kids because we 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 <laughs> focus so much on our career that the personal life just goes to shit. So if you're going to have a kid, it's sometimes by accident, <laughs> which is is my story. Not how I would have written it when I was a child, but that's how the story got written. So, well, it does sound magical, so it goes with the script. So, Austin, you make a decision. So here I am, a single producer who's pregnant. At the time, I'm working at Dr. Phil, and it was not my favorite place to work. That's it. Yeah, that's a daytime talk show. I'm like, how did I end up in daytime talk show first off? Secondly, really different entertainment culture there. There is, it's very heavy on female, which you think would make it great, but the top is not too friendly, and I think that bleeds down. And there's this sort of culture of very vicious, just yucky to be around people there. So I was working sometimes, you know, 22 hour days, driving home in tears, sleeping for an hour and coming back. And this is while I was pregnant and while I was breastfeeding. Oh, wow. And I thought, okay, something's got to give, you know, I've just ended up at the worst place I could imagine. It's, it's not a good sense of life. And, you know, and then I started really reflecting on the past, you know, 16 years. And I thought, you know, I've had a really fun journey, but I've also been on the road a lot. I very rarely get jobs that keep me in LA, which, you know, I don't have very well established relationships, you know, nor is it, it's sort of hard to establish relationships in LA because everybody sort of lives that same thing. They're always traveling out of town and stuff. So I, I started seeing signs that were, you know, go to Austin, go to Austin. So I didn't tell you this part, but my family had slowly relocated to Austin. Mm. So my sister got a, a, she was working at Ford in the corporate side and she got a job at Dell and got relocated to Austin. So my parents were like, you know, or my stepdad and my mom were like, you know, why do we need to be in Michigan anymore? You know, one daughter's in California, one is in Texas. So Texas won the real estate decision (laughs) and, and they moved out to Austin. So now I'm going back and forth for all the holidays. I was seeing Austin start to grow and change. It was a cool place to be. So this was what, around 2016? No, no, when when my sister moved here to Austin, it was about 2010. Yeah. Maybe even very different city then. Maybe even earlier. And um, so now that I had the little one, I started seeing all these sort of signs go to Austin, I, just random commercials or billboards or just things were shouting Austin at me. And I remember sort of laughing like, okay, I get the message, you know, because at this time I thought I for sure had a guardian angel because I had survived that crazy mm-hmm. car accident. And that was like the third time that I had survived death, by the way. we There's like two other stories before then. And so I was like, I for sure have this awesome guardian angel with a sense of humor and and so when I started seeing the signs for Austin, I started laughing out loud and saying, okay, I get it, move to Austin, but there's no jobs in the entertainment business in Austin. And I swear to you, I'm not kidding. That day, I got an email from the Producers Guild, and I've been a member of the Producers Guild since 2005, 
and it said hiring producers in Austin for a TV series. And I laughed. I'm like, (laughs) you got to be kidding me. So I said, okay, I'll apply and see what happens. And I got a phone call, I think that day saying, when can you start? And so that was it. So within a week, things were packed up. And two weeks later, I was in Austin. And Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, it's a six month contract. Well, I'll try out Austin. If it doesn't, you know, after the six months, then I'll probably go back to LA. I didn't think there was a huge entertainment footprint, but boy, was I wrong. Okay. So you made that leap out of your comfort zone into the unknown, albeit with a bit of a safety blanket of having your parents and your sister here, but with um, a small child. What was it that led you then to make a decision not to go back to the familiar? What was it inside you that then triggered that desire to really take a leap into the unknown with AAB? Yeah. Well, what I saw out in Austin was some pretty well-trained folks. It There was a lot of people that had come from LA or New York or London, and they'd been on some pretty substantial mm. things, mixed with some people that had always been in Texas, but they'd been lucky enough to be on some pro shows. There was always some sort of series or big film that was coming through mm. Austin. And Austin really has been lucky to have been for the entertainment business was really sparked, you know, by Richard Linkletter mm, and course, yeah. Robert Rodriguez, who have been very loyal to Texas and filmed a majority of their movies out here. So a lot of the crew had worked on big things. So there was a new sort of entertainment business that was exciting to me, new in my mind. It sort of had this mix between Michigan and California. California with like, I know what the hell I'm doing. But I'm a nice person who doesn't want to waste your time and let's go have some barbecue. And I liked that. I, I could see that there is a potential to have more of a life because before when I lived in LA, my life was the entertainment business. If you said, you know, who are you? I, that's all I was. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything else to answer. I didn't have culture, religion, hobbies, family. I had none of it. All I had was that. And I think that's part of why I lived in such fear. So for the first time ever, I could see the potential to have a well-rounded life while living my dreams. Hmm. Okay. But what triggered the thought? What was the, what was the, the genesis of that idea to create a network to actually sort of give, give back? Yeah. Something? So. When the TV series ended, it was scary. And I didn't know many locals in Austin and people had jobs and stayed with them. You know, they were more full timers at production companies. People weren't jumping around as much. And there were sort of these bubbles. And it was like, how do you get into the bubbles? So I started going to networking groups. And to be honest, I got a little devastated because the networking groups was a lot of people talking about how there weren't many jobs Mm -hmm. and there wasn't an abundance. And, you know, I would probably have to go back to LA. And I was falling in love with Austin so much. I thought, no, I don't want to. And I don't like what they're saying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was reminded of words and how powerful words are. And the thing I hated about networking in LA, people said the same thing in LA. They would talk about 
depletion of things, not enough. And it's like, here we are living in LA, there's abundance. But why are we using these words to, to make us think that we can't, that there's not an abundance and something's coming around the corner? Something always came around the corner mm-hmm. for me in LA. And it took me years to realize, like, stop worrying, Jen. Something always comes. Mm-hmm. So I thought I need to change these words. And I was on meetup.com and, you know, looking at the various entertainment networking groups. And there was one that I was a member of. And it said, the organizer of this group is stepping down. And it gives you the option if you want to step up and take it over. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I looked and they had like 300 followers. And I said, bam, you know, it's already got a little audience. So I took it over. And I rebranded it. I changed the name. I changed everything basically. Mm -hmm. And I was going to call it Hollywood Helper. And I was talking to my mentor from LA, a guy named Michael Blum. And he said, that's a horrible name. You moved to Austin and you're going to call something Hollywood Helper. Just call it what it is. It's Austin Entertainment Business. And I'm like, that's boring. He's like, just say what it (laughs) is. I'm like, okay, you're right. I'm just going to say what it is. And he was absolutely right. That's what it was, like Austin Entertainment Business. Anybody that's in the entertainment business, let's get together. And so I I found somebody that knew somebody at a, a venue, and they put me in contact with them, and I was able to work out a trade-out sort of thing where they would give me the space, and I would bring in a crowd who would buy drinks, mm-hmm. you know, on sort of a dead night. And so the first night for AEB, I strategically got a guest speaker that had a very huge database of people. And I said, okay, invite everybody. We want to fill the room. So I, I put word out and on Meetup and through his database and, you know, just so, social media marketing. And about a hundred people showed up. And I had me and my sister at the door signing people in with pencils. I don't know, were we stuck in the 1980s or something? <laughs> like why we were doing that, that makes no sense. But we signed people in and got everybody in. And uh, and I was walking up on stage and I thought, I haven't even thought about what the format's going to be or anything or what I'm even going to say. All I thought was I'll wing it. And so I picked up the microphone and the thought of, you know, words again entered my head. And I said, welcome to Austin Entertainment Business. Business here is thriving. There are so many opportunities and you all are going to find them here. And let me tell you, everyone shifted. Their eyes brightened up. They got excited. And, and then I, I opened up the microphone for people to introduce themselves to each other. That was an important aspect. So you had that thought on the night. Yeah. It, it was like an, an, an icebreaker. Cause I, I always thought I want to know who's in the room. I always end up talking to like the actor, which mm-hmm. I love actors, but it's like, I need a job and that person's not going <laughs> to give it to me, you know? And, and I know a lot of people think that same way. So you kind of want to know who's in the room and who, who you can sort of target or who you might want to know in the future too. You know, like I do yep. want to know actors in the future, but I'm not casting right this second. So the, opening up the mic really allowed for a lot of people to break the ice and, and make introductions to each other. And when I started talking on the mic myself, my rant just turned into, you know what? I'm going to be honest and I'm just going to tell everybody all the mistakes that I've made, but the things that worked out too. And turns out they, they dug it mm-hmm. and, and I was really nervous. <laughs> and I, and sometimes I would have to jump up and down to get the nerves out 
or turn around like what's his face from the doors where sometimes he talked or sang backwards. Jim Morrison. Jim Morrison. Yeah. yeah. I, sometimes I turned around backwards and talked for a second till I could get enough nerve to turn <laughs> back around. I mean, it, it was really scary, but man, that, that first night after throwing the event. Who was your guest? A guy named Dan Eggleston. He's sort of a legend among among the actors in town and um he connects a lot of actors and just sort of really old school in Austin. Yeah. So he got up to kind of just set the precedence of, you know, what's the vibe in Austin? You know, mm-hmm. he'd been on every movie set for twenty years. Interesting dude. I think he's up to like having read ten thousand books at this point in time. Wow. What a fascinating character he must be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, he was my my first guest speaker. So that was the the genesis of it. Talk about how it's evolved and how it's you had to pivot during COVID. Yeah. So basically, the idea behind it was I wanted to I wanted to know who the players were in town and how Austin works, and I felt like a lot of other people did too. And so I strategically invited guest speakers that would share that advice with us. And it seemed to work. I mean, every time I had an event once a month, over a hundred people or more would show up and to hear that person speak. And, you know, as a producer, there's a trick that I did where I always had a still photographer and I gave him instructions of, I don't want to see posy photos. I want to see people like really like shaking hands, connecting with each other and, you know, just really having a good time. And, and, th- and those are the photos that I, I put out to people after the event. D- don't tell me, show me is a really important thing. And I think that helped build the audience. So when the pandemic happened, I think I had already built an outreach of over 10,000 in all in Austin and in, around, the Texas it, it, area. around Texas. Yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd had like the heads of every production company in town. I'd had the film commissioner doing the events once a month. Mm hmm. So when the pandemic happened, I had switched the venue to be at the W Hotel. So the W Hotel hosted us for a couple of years. And I, it sort of felt like like I was singing the song, like, moving on up. And and people really dug it. The first event I threw there, something like 300 people showed up. I mean, it was just insanity. And um, but, that, but, but at that point, you had the format nailed of doing the intro to the guest, the initial networking, and then giving the mic to people to talk about themselves and their needs and their what yeah yeah so the format is is uh is me opening up the night talking to a guest speaker um opening the mic for people to introduce themselves in 30 seconds or less and if they're struggling i will chime in to help them because i'm trying to help you know there's so many people that when they are working a room they'll just say like hi i'm joe i'm an actor you know and that's forgettable i've already forgot and so I try to help people. Hey, I just finished a, a Broadway play. I'm an expert tap dancer. I'm about to move into a horror movie because I was cast for my great screen. You know, just give me some details that I can start to unfold and want to ask you more questions. So that's, that's the advice that I started giving to people on the mic. Or somebody would say, you know, I'm a triple threat and I sing and I'd say, great, sing right now. And, yeah. you know, eight out of 10 times they would do it and you could see their energy shift afterwards because they had just overcome something mm. big time. They just sung in front of an audience, you know? So people, people started walking up to me at these events. Actually from day one, they were like, Oh my God, thank you so much for this. Like I really needed this. 
they needed to feel in, they needed to feel inspired connection and positive. Mm-hmm. I mean, this business is hard enough, let alone you don't want people telling you there's no jobs and there's a lack of. No, there's not a lack of. There's people working. I don't want to hear that shit. I want to hear there's lots of jobs and there's abundance. It is interesting because I've seen you do exactly as you're describing and you're applying. I'm starting to see this, this trend in, in terms of the power of words and the power of storytelling. What I think you're instilling in people who are clearly talented in their own lane of the entertainment business, whether it's acting, producing, editing, tap dancing, <laughs> singing, how to tell their stories in a powerful, emotive, individualistic way. And I think that's what people are probably, even if they're just in the audience observing, they start to see that you're drawing that out of people, um, encouraging them to express themselves in their own unique way. So I think it's a, a really interesting sort of unique characteristic of the event that you, you, you've developed and it's, it's almost like its own DNA. Yeah. Yeah. It, I basically created the event I wanted uh-huh. for years in Hollywood. I was like, why are events not like this? Or why are they not like that? Or why are they not like this? And then finally, all of those ideas mm. formed AEB. Mm-hmm. It, like, this is the event I want. And thanks for coming too. <laughs> so when that cataclysmic sort of moment happened in 2020 and the hotels went, we're in lockdown, where everyone's in lockdown, what was your react? What was your thought at that point? Do you think, okay, it's going to be a hiatus of a couple of months? <laughs> so I, I, when I was on stage at the W Hotel, they had a projector screen that would project behind me on the wall and I would put these little, you know, logos and whatever for AEB or, you know, topical things. And I started envisioning, wouldn't it be cool to have all these people that were watching us and we were watching them? Like they could chime in anywhere from the world from Skype. And I was like, how would I connect Skype to the projector? And, the, and I, I started thinking about the audio and everything. So when the pandemic happened, I was producing a TV series. Richard Linkletter was the director. And by the way, he was, it was my goal when I first moved to town to work with him. And I even FedExed him a letter, never got a response. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I wonder how many people do that. And uh, here's the magic that AEB has created for me. Somebody that I didn't even know referred me to some producers I didn't know. And they gave me a call and said, you've been referred for this project and it's about animal rescue and blah, blah, blah. And so we spoke a few times and I was getting very excited about it. Up until then, I had been a creative producer for mm-hmm. TV series. After the third phone call, they revealed to me it's a, a logistical producer, a line producer. Mm-hmm. And then they also revealed that Richard Linkletter was the director. And I was like, like yep. and I'm thinking in my head, Logistics, I'm yeah, not a me. line producer. <laughs> but I was like, oh, yeah, OK, I can absolutely do that. I'm like, did Richard Linkletter just fall into my lap? And so as soon as I hung up the phone call, I called six line producers that I had on speed dial that I'd worked with in the past and said, I just got hired to line produce a 10 episode series. I have never done that. Can you like be on speed dial and answer any questions I might have? And they're like, sure. And um, so just an aside for people who don't know the difference between a creative producer and a logistics producer. Yeah. So creative produce and, and this is a nonfiction docuseries. So it doesn't typically. Scripted series it also works differently, but particularly in non-fiction docu-series, the creative producer is usually the writer. We come up with the concepts for the episodes and we go back and forth 
with the network until they are greenlit. And, and then we oversee the aspects of the shoot and we interview people in the field. We direct, we cast, we even do locations and miscellaneous things. And so that was sort of my sweet wheelhouse for many years. And line producer is somebody that creates, oversees the budget and oversees all the numbers and the hiring and the legalese and answering to the network and cost reporting and working with the accountants. So this, you know, I, I knew little pieces of that because I had done a couple movies where I, I did that, but not like, you know, doing a whole series. So it, it was pretty freaky, but my dream had just fallen in my lap in a different way than predicted. And I was not going to let that opportunity pass. And the reason I'm telling this story is I was doing that series right. We had just finished filming when lockdown was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And there was another director on this named Bill Guttentag. He'd won two Oscars in documentaries. And here was the other thing. This is why I believe in magic. Mm-hmm. I had optioned a documentary myself at the time. And, and I had me and the little team that I'd concocted. We said, this is really like Oscar worthy, this material. It, it was found footage, sort of secret recordings captured over a decade that start to reveal a mystery that unravels a rock star, a rising rock star's family life. And, and I thought, Oh God, this is like the footage is so good. It could potentially win an Oscar. And here, all of a sudden, here I am working with an Oscar winning director <laughs> in documentaries. And, so, which is Richard. No, well, oh, Richard I'm, also, but then Bill, Bill, right. Bill in, in documentaries and Richard in scripted. So I actually brought this project to Bill and said, what do you think? And he said, I'm in. So, so here Bill had signed on to the project, the, my documentary, and then, and then I'm doing this series with Richard and then the pandemic happens and AEB is, you know, off to the races also and building this huge audience. But I, I was not devastated. Here's the weird thing about it. When, when, when they said everyone's got to stay home, lockdown, I thought, okay, for the first time ever, the whole world is about to feel what it's like to be a freelancer. <laughs> this uncertainty. And I was like, but I don't get forced to stay home ever. I was excited to stay home. I was like, you're going to force me to stay home? Sweet. You know, because my, my daughter was four at the time. And I thought, oh my gosh, I get to stay, you know, have some quality time with her and I can work remotely and I'm not going to be shoved into a production trailer with 15 other producers simultaneously trying to make phone calls. I mean, mind you, I'm not trying to say that it wasn't a horrible time. For people also, mm. but I always look at the bright side, There's and an I'm t- I'm, yeah. I'm telling y'all the bright side right now f- for me here. So while while we're on lockdown, that that Skype vision came back to my head. But you know what, Skype now package the Zoom. Skype, mm. if you are listening, where the hell were you? Because Zoom stepped in, and um, yeah, it, it, I was like, okay, you know what, we're gonna do a Zoom. And I invited everybody to Zoom. And at the time, I thought, if I invite people in LA and New York to Austin Entertainment Business, they're not going to go. They're going to be like, what is this? I don't live in Austin. So I loved the AEB logo. And so I was like, A, A, A. So I just added the name All Entertainment Business. So it it would make sense Mm -hmm. to everybody else. Mind you, I didn't know what was going to happen years later that Austin would become a mecca of entertainment business and it actually yeah. makes sense now. So I added the name all and I invited everybody and over 300 people ended up on a Zoom. It was wild, wow. just flipping through pages of people. And I actually started to get extremely nervous. 
how many people are on this damn Zoom? But this sort of vision had come to fruition in a different way again. Okay. So where we are right now, we've gone back. Yes, you still do it on Zoom. You still produce. You've got this incredible platform that's got now global awareness. And you've got something that's very Austin-centric. What's your vision? Where do you want to take it? What's the impact you want to have going forward? Right. Because you did skip. I'm going to go back to the question I asked you about what impact you want to lead in the, in the, the years you have left. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I suspect it has to be something to do with this, this amazing sort of growing network of impact that you've built. Yes. The impact that I want to leave is that your dream can come to fruition. You need to stay positive, focused, and and determine what it is that you want and know that it might not show up the way that you expect that it will. And my mission is to create environments that will allow people to thrive with that ideal and connect with each other and grow. I feel like there is a very underserved population of struggling artists that get let down and it's very hard for them because they're struggling to pay the bills while also be a creative. And um, it's easy to get devastated and and leave the business altogether because the big guys like to stomp down the little guys. So my mission is to help the little guys cut through the shit. Regardless of location. Yeah, because we need, we need the and little they's, he's, she's, mm-hmm. you know, whatever term we want to use. We need new voices in the entertainment business. And I want to help create those new voices. I don't want them to get devastated. They deserve a place here at the table too. I mean, I, I, I love attending your events. It's a, because you're hearing the authentic stories of people showing their talents, their passions, their vulnerabilities in front of an audience, and then connecting with each other. Zoom is wonderful. Skype, uh, Teams, whatever you want, you want to call it. But it doesn't replicate the, the true human connection that exists in, in these physical events, these physical meetups. How do you scale that across the world to deliver your mission? Because I think human connection will remain pivotal to people achieving their, their dreams, as you say, and, and building environments yeah. where positivity can thrive and people there, can grow. There's a real rinse and repeat to this. So the idea behind it is telling real stories that are relatable. So many times I would see guest speakers and they're talking so high above me, I can't even connect to what they're saying. So I really push to get the real stories that doesn't matter what you do in the room, even if you're not in the entertainment business. I want there to be a connection with the story that you're hearing from the person. Um, so this is sort of the rinse and repeatable advice, a positivity, a icebreaker, open mic, and then just, you know, non-threatening networking. You know, the last event I told everybody, I said, guess what? This is not a networking event. Just find out people's stories. Because I think people think Mm. if you use the word networking, that they need to go, hey, I'm so-and-so. What do you do? What do you do? And Mm. it's just so impersonal rather than just, you know, connecting. It's also why I I find it much more when I ask this 
quest- first question is, who are you? Because you go to an event like that, the natural inclination is to say, oh, what do you do? They define, therefore defined you. Oh, I work in advertising. I am an engineer. I'm, well, no, who are you? Yeah. And that's, that's the great thing. As you say, when you're telling your story, it's about who you are and where you come from, what you believe in and what your ambitions are and your hopes and your fears and all these things. Yeah. But I'm going to come back. So where do you take it? Where do you take it next? Where's, where's it going to be in 2030? Yeah. So. The idea is that it's got a rinse and repeat format and we can do start doing this in other major cities in the US and then globally. So London, so, Edinburgh. Yeah, London, London, Edinburgh, LA, New York. I say that Atlanta. Edinburgh's building a big entertainment scene around studios outside Edinburgh. It's right for it. Yeah, you know, if we can rinse and repeat this format and then we find that runs each group in each city mm-hmm. that, you know, sort of is the head logistics, you know, on microphone person. And that will be the hard part. It's so at some point there will be some traveling and identifying those people. But ideally, you know, that's what we do. We have a new gen in Edinburgh and, and London and New York, and LA. It's very and exciting. Yeah. Wow. Well, if there's any people listening and people in my network that are keen to get involved, they know, they certainly know where to reach out and, and connect with you. I'll put your details in the show notes. Yeah, that would be amazing. So, and I, I always tell people at these events that there's abundance, there's jobs. AEB will eventually be a huge employer of jobs. You know, I started with volunteers. I pay my volunteers now. Everybody that you see at those events is paid. And so we are growing. I want them to have the option to have full-time jobs out of this if they want it. It strikes me that there, there's an opportunity here for, as a business, besides the power of the network itself, of what the, the AEB becomes over the next 10, 15 years. You look at the representation groups, of the likes of the talent agencies of the William Morris, Endeavor, Creative Artists. This could be an alternative. It could be a disruptor to their models, probably. Potentially, yeah. I mean, I think we need disruptors, though. We need people to to be discovered in in all areas where they don't necessarily have access to mm-hmm. those agents. Now, I was just watching the Lizzo documentary, and she was saying she went to all the agencies to get big girls to be her dancers, and they were they didn't they weren't represented, and so she had to go all throughout the U.S. and find them herself. So it's, you know, AEB is part of that discovery Mm. of finding that underrepresented talent and connecting them with Hollywood. That's another component we didn't talk about, but half of my Zooms also are people from Hollywood that I am connecting purposely into the AEB so that they will notice and realize. And a lot of people have gotten signed and optioned and all kinds of things through the group, which is amazing. Man, it's very exciting. Creativity and, and curiosity. I've talked to many guests in the past about the the power of curiosity. People just don't really think about it and about nurturing it necessarily. But clearly, your upbringing has been part of the nur- your nurturing has led to you being a curious and creative person. Can we go back and can you reflect on a moment when you occurred to you? These characteristics were something that you had that maybe other people didn't have in the same capacity. I think it was just instilled in me that 
I don't necessarily take what somebody says to be the end all, a all of things. And I've heard so many stories through that small town culture I grew up in and my mother and politics and whatever to, to be able to read in between the lines. And there was something inspiring about figuring out the real story. And I don't know if it's because I also love puzzles and checkers and, Mm. you know, games that stories to me feel like a puzzle too, that I'm always trying to, to figure out, you know, what actually is the real story here? Cause I see you talking, but I'm not sure that I'm getting the whole story. So it's, I don't know. I've just always been very curious to why things are the way they are. And especially after being influenced by magic and I produced a lot of ghost stories at one point and then you know, the politics, you know, I realized that there's way more below the surface and in just mind manipulation, in spirituality, beliefs, the power of belief, the art of manipulation, all of that stuff. I don't know. It's just fascinating to me. What do you think your natural sort of gifts or talents or superpowers are? Uh, my natural gift or superpower is if I find something that I like or want to do, I have the ability to take it from nothing and get it all the way to the end. And there's one story that I, or there's a million stories I haven't shared, but there's one that I want to share. And this relates back to being influenced by my mother being a social worker is that through AEB, the networking group that I founded, a guy was attending the group for about a year. And when he revealed to me, he was sitting on over a decade of home video footage of his wife being undiagnosed with bipolar. And she went from normality as seen through the home video footage to complete depression and mania. And he had put it to get all the footage together amateurly and believed that he had a documentary. And I watched it and said, yeah, you do. I have never seen such intense, raw, emotional footage in my life. Shocking. And take down everything that exists anywhere. And I'm going to help you put this together in the right way. And from there, I was able to raise money and got a two-time Oscar-winning director attached to it, a Grammy-winning composer. Michelle Trachtenberg did the voiceover and the project is repped by Gersh. And that was just something that, you know, mm-hmm. came out of AEB. But the thing, the superpower is I wanted to do it. You know, I was influenced by the lack of mental health help in this world. People are just thrown out on the streets. That was the solution when they cut funding for state mental institutions was to throw people out on the streets, literally. That's why we have such a homeless problem in America. And when I saw this, I saw the bigger mission statement globally. You know, if we can affect one person or more, here's a look at what happened to one family because they weren't able to get help. Do you want this to happen to your family? No. Like, let's do something, guys. Like, we put so much money into other things. Mental health is everything. You can overcome cancer with mental health. I can't believe we're so barbaric in our thoughts. So anyways, that feels like a superpower. That was literally a project that, you know, wasn't going to go anywhere. And now it's like, bam, here we go. What do people compliment you for? Never stopping. (laughs) 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 
Um, I don't accept the word no if mm. I don't want to. If somebody is saying no, there's a reason. So I want to know what the reason is. And if it's an, and, and then it might be a no right now, but it's not a no forever. So they notice that. They notice that when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. Mm. Even if I've got to climb up a mountain and shimmy down the side. You've had a life and, and it's, a na- it's also natural byproduct of being freelance, regardless of what industry. You li- have to live with ambiguity and uncertainty as to where next paycheck's coming from. And dealing with that takes a certain spirit, particularly when you're sort of a creative individual as well. You have to deal, you've got to be confident. You've got to believe in yourself. And you said the power of belief is so central to the way you think, the use of your words, the inner voice. How do you deal with the fragility and the doubt that is always there? There are always those moments, and whether it be in the middle of the night and there's early waking hours when, when you don't know where, what's coming around the corner. But you know it's going to come, but there's still the little voice in there. How do you deal with that? <laughs> you know, for, for many years, I do- dealt with uncertainty, with fear, and uh, drinking, to be yeah. honest with you. Like, in L.A., everybody just goes out for cocktails and, you know, drinks way more than they should. Because I think all of us are fearful and we just don't want to think about it. You want to just numb yourself. And so when I came out to Austin and started having more of a well-rounded life, I had to find dealing with fear in health and working out and spirituality. And so... You don't think people here drink as much as in LA? I don't know. I don't... I feel like people drink a lot, but it's more like a slow burn of just Mm. having a beer, some barbecue... Like in LA, it's pounding cocktails <laughs> till two in the morning and then going to the after hours and then, <laughs> and then, you know, going into the Hollywood Hills and then, you know, you know, I started to, to go inward and mm-hmm. start to notice when things are, when I'm not feeling good. You know, I can catch myself like when I'm very tempted to stay on the couch all day. I mean, mm-hmm. I just did it the other day, but I needed to rest. I'd worked 45 days in a row. But can't let myself do that more than a day or two. Like I have to force myself off the couch and mm-hmm. go you know, do a big workout, get the good endorphins going and uh-huh. go, okay, okay, I'm back. But it, you know, it, it's hard. You got, you got to find, I got to find my little tricks that, yeah. you know, as soon as you're going down, that will take you back up. What comes across is an, 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 an immense resourcefulness and well of persistence and perseverance that probably was instilled in you by your parents. But I assume also from probably observation of people around you you've worked with in the past. What do you actually value in other people that you encounter? What are the important characteristics? The important characteristics of people that I value are people that live up to their word. They do what they say they're going to do. That's everything. Dependability, Mm -hmm. motivation, inspiration for life, goals. You know, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I want to be inspired by the people I spend time with. I want to feel like they're pulling me forward. For so many years, the people I have been around have been the opposite of that. Well, I was going to say, it doesn't sound, when you say those words, this description doesn't seem to be LA (laughs) or the perception of Hollywood. Yeah. As an outsider, what it's... uh... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's easy to surround yourself by people that are less than you or that pull you down because it feels good to be the smartest person in the room. And then you don't realize you're being pulled down, down, down. 
And, uh, that was my life for, you know, 15 years. And, you know, it's, it's not till recently that I had to start letting some people go and finding new friends and associates. And I have a new rule, no matter how desperate I am for money, I refuse to take something if the company culture is not good, if it has a bad reputation. I mean, the old me would have taken, I would take anything anytime. So your Dr. Phil lesson has lasted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's just, it's not worth it. it. It was affecting my mental health, my physical health, my, my everything, every piece of pie of me was affected by it. And I just won't do it anymore. You had this wonderful end of year holiday event where you had some great industry luminaries and um, sort of inspiring speakers, both on Zoom and in person, where you asked them to share five pieces of advice. I'm going to throw it back at you. <laughs> what are your five pieces? Or not five, maybe three. What would you offer? Yeah, my five pieces of advice. Identify what it is that makes you smile and that feels like fun for your career. And then write it down. Think about it every day and start to figure out how you're going to get there. Just do one little baby step at a time and tell everybody, scream it at the top of your lungs, what this is that you're going to. Life is too short to fuck around with stuff mm -hmm. like that. Uh, secondly, create a, a, a circle for yourself. If you imagine a pie with a bunch of slices in it, one is career, one is family and friends, one is health and activities. One is free time. One is vacation time and, you know, being a kid. I don't know how many that's adding up to. You know, have all your little slices of pie and make sure you give attention to each one so that when one of them gets broken or stale, you've got all the rest of them to hold you up. And lastly, I would say... Your words are everything, but especially the ones that you use on yourself. And every time you say, I'm not good enough, or I'm a klutz, or I don't have enough time, catch yourself and change your words. I am going to make time and I'm working on my schedule right now. And I am good enough. I am looking for a mentor who's going to help. I'm going to take another class. You know, just turn everything around to positive words that you tell yourself. And you'll start catching yourself and eventually those those negative words we tell ourselves are gone. Do you think daily affirmations matter? Absolutely, 100%. You you have a thousand conversations with yourself every day and that will affect who you, who and what you attract into your life, what you, what you are thinking about at any given point. It's like people and things are radio stations. And the more you think about something, the more you're tuning into that radio station. So if you're thinking debt, 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 like even if you're saying, I want to get out of debt, the word debt is there. So you're tuning into the debt radio station. Let's change the word. I want to attract abundance. Guess what? Now you're tuning into the abundance radio yeah. station. I think it's a, I, been updating the Impossible Network website to sort of reflect where I'm taking it. And I think there's a, I talk about the alchemy of possibility. If we distill a lot of what you're saying and bring it into components, that there is, this is all code. 
a human code for li- living and thinking. You know, clearly said thoughts are things, words matter. There's belief, the belief in yourself, belief that what's around the corner is happening. There's desire, where you want to be. There's expectation that's going to happen. But then there's also the actions you have to take, which are the manifestations of the desires and the belief. What comes first? Is it belief or desire? I think the desire comes first, the idea. And then you need to believe the idea, whatever it may be. There, so many people have ideas that they don't believe. Oh, I, I want a big mansion on the lake. Or believe it, but they don't take the actions to bring it to life, into manifest it. Into yeah, life. yeah. Because you must see this all the time in your industry. I mean, I've done a startup and I've had so many conversations with people saying, oh, I had that idea. Yeah, but you never did anything with it. Exactly. I, I, ideas are a dime a dozen. Mm-hmm. You have to take action. And there's so many people that say, I want to be a superstar. And then I say, are you taking an acting class? Do you have an acting mentor? Can you memorize a monologue? What are your top three characters? How do you brand yourself? And most people don't have an answer to any of that, mm-hmm. but they want to be a superstar. A yeah. st- not even just like a B-list actor. They want to be an, they want to be Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks studied his ass off. He took action. I'm not saying you have to study your ass off. I'm saying take action. Go to, go perform at kid parties. Do you see your observation? You've got a network, a growing network of people in Austin, across virtual, <laughs> virtually across the world, multi-generational. And in my observation, that's a really interesting thing from attending your events. There's every generation that attend your events. Do you see any patterns in relation to what you're discussing, the way people think, the words they use? Or do you think it's just, it's universal? depends on the individual. I think people in general do not use great words with themselves. There's a lot of fear and doubt. And ask anybody, what are your goals for the new year? One of the top five answers will be to get out of debt. That tells me you're already using the wrong Wrong words. words, You know, so I think a lot of people... I'm inspired by the people that come to the group because it means you're trying. You're trying to change. You're trying to do something. But, you know, you also have to take the advice. If, if you're, if you're taking time out of your day to do something, mm-hmm. like you also have to take the advice, whether it's a mentor or a networking group or a guest speaker or whatever, like really stand in those shoes. You know, every time I throw the group, I say the best way to get into this industry is to give help to somebody that's already made it. Do you know that? maybe one or two people in the 20,000 people that have shown up in six years have offered help to me. And every volunteer that comes through to help me with the group before I start paying them. And while, and you know, I'm not paying them like a full-time salary right now, but at least a little bit of money helps. Every single person that I work with on AEB, I have gotten production jobs. And we talk about that too. So people in the audience even know that that happens. And they still don't. And then they will, they will email me after the event and say, I'm really trying to get into the industry. Will you meet for coffee? And I'm like, I just told you how to do this. Yeah. Now you want me to drive to mm-hmm. you yeah. and sit there for an hour and have coffee so you can pick my brain that I've worked very hard on common, er, you know, <laughs> manufacturing over the past 15 years. And then I get to drive home three hours out of my day and you're not taking my advice. Uh-huh. So why do I want to sit there for an hour for you to not take my advice again? Brilliant. I wonder why. I wonder if it's the maybe 
the reality is that although they are taking that step to attend the event, the reality that's biting inside them is that doubt and uncertainty and the negative voice going, what have I got to offer her? Yeah, potentially. It is scary to reach out to somebody. You know, I've done it and, you know, you're sort of putting yourself out there to the person. But my mentor that got me into film, she did a telecall when telecalls were popular and everybody would hop on the phone call. And she was giving advice about, about, she wrote the first book about indie film producing. Her name's Suzanne Lyons. Mm -hmm. And so she was giving this fantastic advice. And I was in, you know, nonfiction docuseries at the time. And I, but I really realized I wanted to be in film. And so I followed up with her afterwards and said, Hey, I'm a producer, but I want to be in film. I don't necessarily want to start at the bottom. So I don't know how to cross over. Can I offer? some free help to you and I can start learning, you know, what you know better. And, you know, I can organize files, emails, like whatever you need, but I just want to be around you and absorb your knowledge. And she goes, holy shit, nobody ever offers that. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And so, yeah, I mean, I came and did administrative tasks for a little while. And, but then she said, Hey, I want to get these directors on board with my movies. She gave me a list, you know, it was like Ron Howard and people like that. I'm like, what? And so I literally called Ron Howard's office on her behalf to get him attached to a script. I'm in, and we just formed, you know, this great working relationship. We're still friends to this day. She hired me on two movies. So then I was a movie producer, but you know, I gave first. I tell people this story every freaking time and nobody does it. I was going to say that, oh, maybe you need to have people at the events that can inspire people around coaches, mentors, but you had Barbara Doust. Barbara Doust. Barbara Doust. There's great talk. It maybe it's just it takes it takes repetition. I mean, you'd say it every time, but just maybe it's there's so much ingrained in people in their upbringing, in their environment, in their culture that creates that that weight of doubt. That to to overcome it doesn't happen with just one comment, one encouragement. After all, you wouldn't want 300 people turning up at your door going, "Hey, can I help?" Or maybe you would. No, no, I wouldn't. It, it, it actually takes a lot of work and time to yeah, train somebody exactly, to help you. Yeah. <laughs> so it's got it's got to be the right ma- match. But yeah, Barbara Doust. The thing I love about her, you know, and I hired her to be a success coach for me, and she was great. I mean, life changing. And she gets you into thinking about the paradigms, and the paradigms are your old habits. Mm-hmm. There's something that's been installed in us since survival days. If you find a way to survive, then your body goes, okay, here's how I survive. And it creates a habit. This is what Mm -hmm. we do every time. And this is how we survive. And so now we're in a culture where we're not being, you know, well, most of us aren't being potentially attacked by a bear every day, but we still have these paradigms, these old habits that form to protect ourselves. When we try to do a change or start something new, the paradigms show up, the old habits say, no, 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 scary fear here don't do this. We could die. And, you know, mentally, but we could die. Um, And I think that is what's happening with most people that, you know, show up to a networking event or AEB is they are fighting their paradigm. They're trying to overcome this old habit that's saying, oh, no, 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 don't talk to people. People are scary. What if they reject you? What if, what if, what if? I know. It's so true. I've had said this to so many people that, you know, obviously they're the extroverts will always go out, but most people I think have gotten a a, a certain... uh, introverted side but there is a, a sense of i've got my drink i've got my phone which is the worst possible thing to have at a networking event your phone because everyone's heads are down but it is that you know part 
reason I started this podcast was around the power of serendipity. And you just never know who that person is that's standing next to you. And just one comment could open up a whole new path in your life because you just don't know. So why would you take the decision not to smile, not to say hi? Because of, because of the risk of rejection or the opportunity of some incredible new direction in your life. And I think that's the thing that is good what you're doing is you're nurturing a mental approach to networking that I would think is maybe being has having some synergistic effect when they go to other events and people will be more likely to reach out and to talk. I think you're chipping away. I just don't think it's going to happen overnight. I think the natural inclination is to hold the phone and the drink and the head down rather than the head up and the smile. Yeah. But I think it's it's good. I think it's a it's this a byproduct of what you're doing is having impact. The world's clearly changing at the moment. We have countless issues. We have a, a media maelstrom of negative new in the news cycle surrounding us. Yet there's so many great things happening in the world and what the impact people are having and the stories that are counter to what we're often reading in the news cycle. If you could take a step back and say you've got this built great network, what would you like to see change in the world? What would be the change you'd like to see occur in the world as a result of what you're doing with AEB? I would like to see people transition to stop complaining and expecting that other people are going to fix their problems, the world mm. problems, and shift their mind to what can I do? What is the one little thing I can do? Even if it is just connecting with their own family or their own friends or, you know, I'm just... I'm so sick of people blaming other people. And I think that's a big part of our problems. I would really love, and I think there's a lot of people that are shifting into this where, you know, they, they take action in a positive way. I think so many people think that their little, their little thing isn't going to make a difference. But if everybody does a little thing, that's, that's a big thing. Do you think that's what's happening? What we're seeing with the unraveling of the global economy? We're going to see a return to local focus and local responsibility and a belief in that we can have small changes make a big impact when it happens at scale at a local level. I think we could become very localized because... We're still globally connected. That's not going to go away. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, there's a huge shift that's happening with people being able to work remotely and that they, you know, are now moving to smaller cities or country and they are connecting and enjoying with the locals more. Mm. They're finding more free time. They're not wasting all this time on the commute and the water cooler. So that that is exciting because people are starting to care what their environment and the people look like. So they're not spending all their time in a corporate office. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, because we're seeing this sort of global inflation and prices rising and jobs not getting any more pay. And mm-hmm. <laughs> something's going to implode at some point. So what uh, do you think as a person, you're at the heart of the, one of the most creative industries, if not the most, obviously, most creative industries on the planet. Yeah. Just in the last few months, although I've been talking about AI for years, we've seen an acceleration of the impact or maybe the manifestation of what AI can actually mean for creative people, often referred to in white collar and creative industries with things like GPT-3 in, in 
in in creation of text and stories and also with imagery with stable diffusion and dali in these technologies are probably going to end up in video as a video as well what's your sense of how do we prepare as an industry of creative people as we face this onslaught or the opportunity that will actually emerge with the infusion of artificial intelligence into our creative toolkit. Yeah. AI is a tricky conversation because it's already happening in the creative industries where a lo- every studio and agency is using some form of AI to analyze scripts. And there are algorithms that will determine what actors could potentially do well with sales, what genres, you know, what writers, what producers. And this is exciting for identifying a project and taking your heart out of it and knowing like, okay, this, you know, the AI is saying that audiences will react because they have and what's going on globally and economically and whatever, like the AI saying this is a winner or a loser. But the thing that's scary about it is the AI is not going to realize something that's a new idea or a new actor. Never or, recognized Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of flowing with the masses mm-hmm. And, you know, we know historically that's never necessarily a good thing. And then, you know, we've also got problems with social media. And, you know, when you're perusing Google, for example, the AI is identifying your key search word and it will start showing you more of what you like. So if you're always looking for things about dogs, you're going to start seeing ads about dogs, articles Mm -hmm. about dogs. If you're, you know, a Republican and you're looking up Republican things, you're going to start seeing more articles that tell you, you know, what a great good thing it is that you are Republican and Democrats are horrible people. And, you know, it will start telling you what you want to hear. And in the reverse, you know, if you're Mm. a Democrat. So that can get very scary because it starts to take away your free will. You're not just searching on your own free will, getting the option to see a diversity of articles. Just on that, I've been using a a browser. I've been trying to walk away and dial back my use of Google technologies for the last year or so. And I've been using a wonderful search engine and browser called Neva, which was actually being built by one of the ex-head of engineering at Google Search. And they recently launched in their news part of their browser, a thing called Biasbuster. So if you're searching for something that's news-related, let's just say it could be Texas gun laws, for example, and it'll pull up all the news articles and you've got a little slider and you can go blue or red and it'll take you, depending on how far you go, you can sort of move and see what the news articles are that are more left, more right. And it's really interesting to sort of go down that route to be able to confront, let's say, your natural bias. Um, I talked about serendipity and belief that conversations, encounters, experiences open up new pathways and new opportunities. What in serendipity's impact would you hope this podcast interview will have? Mm. I hope that somebody listening will be so inspired that they want to come in as a financial partner to help grow AEB so that we can hire the full-time global team to take this group where it really needs to go. Wow. That sounds sounds like a, a 2023 outcome. So you've grown an amazing community. And as I grow the Impossible Network community going forward, I want what would your ask be for the community? Maybe the same thing as a serendipitous outcome, but that ask might take some time to be answered. But what would you like that ask? What do you want to ask to be? For me personally or them? Your ask for you personally. 
Oh, for me personally. Um, well, but let's do both. Let's do both. That's good. Okay. My ask for me personally would be to follow me, Jennifer Hutchins, on social media and support any of the projects I'm putting out there, you know, where we're trying to help shine a light on bipolar, mental illness. We're trying to create communities of people that support each other in the creative arts. There, there will eventually, there's a, a community that I have brewing to support single moms. I work with foster kids. Like I'm, I'm going tonight to work with foster kids. So I would say if you could follow the Jennifer Hutchins social media and I'll give you the link that links to mm-hmm. everything, whether yeah. you're Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And, and I'll put stuff out on, on there. You um, need to connect with one of my other guests, Courtney Rennick. She has a psychotherapy practice in New York, Renegade Associates, and deals with specifically adoptive families and foster care for children and families. Oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah. It's it's a, it's a big cause issue in Texas, which has one of the worst foster care systems. And the group that I'm a part of, it's called Hopefully So, and Hopefully So creates experiences for foster kids just to connect and keep showing up for, for these kids. So whether it's just doing some arts and crafts with them, like tonight we're going to go, you know, pack some, uh, what do you call it? Stockings. Stockings. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> tonight we're going to go pack some stockings and make some Christmas ornaments, uh-huh. but you know, it's just continuously connecting nice. with the kid. I'm into dance. So we often will come teach them dance. So it's a great organization, but my hope, my hope for the community as a, a whole is, you know, whether you're a mentor or a mentee, mm-hmm. find the other person, yeah. you know, find one and then keep adding, keep adding, keep adding. So if you are somebody that knows something, find somebody to help. If you are somebody that wants to know more, find someone that can help you. And it's great. They'll become your friend and your lifelong accountability partner. That's, that's a good ask. I took hiatus in the podcast from June, July this year because I wasn't sure where I was taking it. One of the first podcasts I ever did, I went to Boston to interview Merritt Moore, Dr. Merritt Moore, who is this amazing combination, maybe polymath, you might say, but also combined ballet dancer, international ballet dancer and quantum physicist and trained astronaut, age 33. Incredible person. And when I went up to interview her, I went to the MIT museum afterwards and I was sort of browsing around there and was looking at this amazing glass exhibit. And I read in the glass exhibit this this piece and explanation and said that the Department of Glass Technology, what we do is we engineer random collisions between artists, engineers, and scientists, because that's where true innovation comes from. Oh, I love that idea of random collisions. And it sort of sat back in my mind for four years now. So when I went through this coaching mentoring sort of process, this thing came back to me. I thought, collisions, that's what I want to do. So rather than I just interviewing individuals and waiting for that person to tell me who I interview next and building this amazing network, which has been, I'm going, what if I could actually engineer random collisions? So what if I could in, I, I could say, right, Jennifer, you need to speak to Courtney. Let's see what random collision leads to. So that's what I'm intending to do. So I'm challenged to you is if I suggest you connect with someone, would you be willing to? A quantum physicist ballerina? Done. Yes. <laughs> well, it might be that, but it might be someone else. It could be one of the others. Yes, 100%. You have had some of the most 
intriguing guest speakers. And I'm honored to even be a part of that. So I challenge you with a good time on that one. That sounds fantastic to meet one of your guest speakers. Well, it's not just meeting. I want you to take action because we've talked about desire and belief. And I think the the collision of different mindsets and different skill sets and experiences where there might be some coalescing around shared problems that people perceive in the world is where new ideas will emerge and new opportunities and new networks. So I, I think it's, um, you know, it's great you've got the Austin Entertainment business because I think as more people come to it, it will have a transformative effect. I'm excited about where, when, let's say, parallel networks, passionate people, when they come together, what happens? So that's what I want to engineer. So let's see what happens when you meet or speak to Merritt Moore. Hopefully we'll get her into Austin. My final question, I'll continue to do this through this next iteration of the podcast. I still will ask my final question, which is who do I interview next? Oh, gosh. I would say... You need to interview Barbara Doust and Suzanne Lyon. Okay. They're such big influences on my positivity of the entertainment business. Perfect. Okay. Well, um, it's been a fascinating, meandering, in-depth conversation around discovering the real Jennifer Hutchins, the who you are, and not just what you do, which I knew before. And it's been inspirational, and I hope it's inspirational to the people that hear this and that people reach out to you, answer your ask, and that you find that financial partner to support you in growing the network. Yes, thank you. And I guess we'll change that word to, I'm so excited for that financial partner that's coming into play this year. Yes, definitely excited for that financial partner. <laughs> maybe I can sort of think of some as well. Let's see, it's <laughs> not just waiting for it. It's maybe how can we push a few people in our networks? in the right direction. <laughs> Love it. Cool. Okay. Well, have a wonderful holiday and look forward to further conversations down the line. All right. And uh, uh, there's probably an update that needs to happen after I meet the introduction that you're going to set up. Oh, yes, definitely. That will definitely be following up. In fact, that's what I'm going to have to do down the line because I'm, as I'm interviewing, I'm putting it into two buckets for the moment. I'm calling them the curious and the creative and the difference makers. But reality is probably everyone's making, you're making a difference as well. But these these combinations, these random collisions, is there's got to have to be a follow-up afterwards to see what happens, what the outcome is. So yeah, it'll be happening down the line, 2023. Can't wait. All right, Jennifer, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much, and see you next time. 